So excuse me if I cough a little bit. I might be hopped up on cough drops. I've not been feeling super great. So um, I think the sickness bug has been going around for everybody. Uh, I love, love, love watching movies. Movies is kind of one of the things that uh, I love stories. And so just the other uh, the other week, uh, Em and I were watching uh, the movie The Patriot. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's with Mel Gibson. Um, but the story is basically about this, uh, the time of this, uh, our independence, you know, when they're waging war against Britain. And, uh, and the story features... Uh, you know, obviously Mel Gibson, but he is his father that um, has fought before and uh, and doesn't want to necessarily go to war. But he ends up being dragged into war. And one of the things that really sticks out for me as I watch the movie is that all the suffering that happens. You know, early on in the movie, um, you see that he loses one of his his sons. You know, he the, the movie starts with him losing his wife. His wife is, is obviously out of the picture. And then one of his sons is lost. And then midway through the movie, you see... Another time when his eldest son is is lost, and in that moment of like, it's it's really a picture of what happens to us in the deepest darkest nights of our soul, right? What what happens when you have a pain that's so great that words can't express it, that you can't you can't talk, you can't express what you're going through because it's it's so deep, it's so hard. Have you have you ever had moments like that? Have you had moments where words just seem too insignificant? to express what it is that you're feeling, what it is that you're going through. We're going to talk about that today as we go into the book of Romans. If you guys have your Bibles and you would open up, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Um, just if you're new, I want to give you guys a preview. We've been going through the book of Romans. We believe that the scriptures speak, and so we want to allow that to happen. And so we faithfully go through God's word systematically so that the scripture would speak and so that we would hear. And so what we've learned, um, guys, a, a quick outline of Romans. There's five S's in Romans. Um, it starts up with Romans talks about sin. And then it goes in and it starts talking about salvation, how is it we're saved. And then it starts talking about next, how is it practically that we're changed, right? How do practically we change as Christians? And then he goes and later on where we're going is that we'll talk about God's sovereignty. And then we'll talk about, okay, we've learned a lot of doctrine. What does that mean practically? And we'll learn what it means for Christians to serve. What does it mean for us to live out all this doctrine that we've been taught? And so right now we're in the middle of this uh, section in Romans where we learn about how is it that we're changed as Christians? How is it practically that we, um, you know, adapt and look differently than we were before? And so what we learned is chapter 8, where we're at right now, is the climax. It's the height of a whole book of Romans. And so in chapter 7, just so you guys know the transition, in chapter 7, it started talking about indwelling sin. Listen, that all of us fall short. doesn't matter who you are. If you want to take off the mask, you would say, there are lots of things in my life that I wish I could change. There are lots of things that I continually struggle with day in and day out, and I just wish that I could get rid of them. Even mature, godly Christians, and Paul says this. He says, man, for I continue to do the thing that I don't want to do. I hate it, but I continue to struggle with this. Right? And in the middle of this, this heart-wrenching, aching sin that he struggles with, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about the third person, the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And we've learned that the Holy Spirit comes, and he brings this realization that there's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus. That the sentence of guilty has been taken, and the Holy Spirit is the one that helps us to understand that. So if perhaps today you're new and you're not a Christian here, and you come and you start to understand and you hear for the first time that, listen, God no longer has guilt for you. God no longer has condemnation because of, uh, because of Christ Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life to help you even understand that. That's one of the ways that you know that God is real because he's helping your mind to understand these truths. And so 
We learned that the Holy Spirit brings life. He brings freedom. And last week we talked about that what, you know, because it says, listen, we wage war by the Spirit. Right. If we are Christians, if we want to overcome sin in our lives, there's a specific way to do it. Okay, you don't do it by saying try harder. You don't say, gosh, I'm just such a terrible person. If I would just muster up some more effort and just try a little bit harder, then maybe I could be better. No, he says that's not how you change as a Christian. How you change is that you live according to the spirit. Right. You, you set your minds on the things of the spirit. If you do those things, then you will naturally fight the flesh. You'll begin to kill it. You'll begin to overcome it. And he says, so what are the things of the spirit? And what we learned last week is that things of the Spirit is that, one, that we approach God as our Papa. We approach God as our Father. That God isn't simply a judge. That he's not simply this object creator that's somewhere out there. But instead, he is very intimate and personal to us. He is our, our Father, our Papa, right? And that he has a glorious future for us. But right now, we struggle with that, right? We, we know that there's something better that's out there. There's something better coming. But right here now, we struggle, because it says that all of creation is subjected to futility, right? All of creation is cursed because of our sin. We are the cosmic cog that broke everything else, right? I mean, like you look at a clock, we are what broke the clock. We're the one, the cog that stuck everything else up. And because of us, creation is cursed. And so it says that creation groans and that we groan waiting for this time of redemption, waiting for this time of this glorious future that will come to the children of God and to all of creation, but how do we deal with that in the midst of it, right? We know that something better is coming, but how do we cope here and now, right? How do we deal with the fact that we're not there yet? We know we, ho- we hope for it. But this is what Paul turns to. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to read uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. And Paul's going to talk about how do we deal here and now with this already not yet, with this struggling to say it's coming, but it's not here. So read with me now. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. All right, so what we're going to look at first is we're going to look at the Spirit's ministry, the Holy Spirit's ministry in our prayer life. Okay, how does the Holy Spirit operate in what we're praying and how we're praying? The next thing is we're going to talk about how that everything works together for good, right? Everything works together for good. And the last thing we're going to look at is that God has an order in salvation, right? There's a process in salvation, and so we look at that in those last verses. So, first one. The Spirit's ministry in prayer. Um, if we look here, it says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Right? That, like I said earlier, there are times where words simply can't express what we're going through. Right? There's, and, and I don't know, but usually there's three, there's three times when this manifests itself in my life. Right? It's either sin, either I've done something and I am thinking something or I'm going through something so deep and so hard and I'm so frustrated that, like, I've come to the wit's end. 
and I just can't I can't even talk about it anymore. Instead, there's this deep longing, this deep groan inside of me. And what it says it says that the Spirit knows what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling in those moments. Right? He intercedes. So it's either sin in my life, or it's 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 just the brokenness of the world. I remember when my mom got cancer my senior year was one of those moments. She had had cancer before, and this was the second moment. And it was in that moment that there were literally words couldn't describe because I was so angry. I was so frustrated at the pain and the brokenness in this world. And so there were no words to express that. Instead, it was just there. It was almost as if there was a groaning that was too deep for me to express verbally. And the third thing is that there are even joys. Because you'll notice it says... Um, the spirit intercedes us with groanings too deep for words, right? In the previous passage, it uses this word groaning twice, right? It says that creation is groaning, right? Under the, as if, as in childbearing. And so it's this mixed thing. This groaning can be something that's in pain, but can also be something that's in joy and expectation. And so I've, I've had experiences in my life when there's something that's been so good, where I've been so blessed that it leaves me in a sense of just utter thankfulness in which I look around and I say, man, if this is what has been given and it fills my heart so much that I realize that there's something better, there's something more to come. And it almost leaves me speechless. I mean, those experiences I wish happened more frequently than I currently have them. And I'm sure all of us wish the same, but I know several weeks before I was just praising the Lord and there just, there became a sense in my heart, just an ache almost because I wanted him so much. I long for him so much. I've never touched him. I've never seen him, but I want him. And the more we grow, the more we have this kind of ache, this longing to see the one that has redeemed us and saved us and who will renew everything. And so we see that this groaning, while it can happen because of pain and hardship and sin, it can also happen because of great rejoicing, because of of great expectation and excitement. And so he says in this that, that we don't know how to pray. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes prayer is hard. You know, I mean, I just watched the the movie, uh, was it Prayer? Uh, War Room. War Room. And, uh, and it was an awesome movie. If you haven't seen it, I really encourage you to go see it. And it, it talked about the ups and downs. Um, I left there one really encouraged because knowing that there is power in prayer, that God does. God hears prayer and answers prayer and works through prayer. But also realizing that prayer is also hard. <laughs> You know, like there's this kind of scene of her like trying to get comfortable figuring out how to pray. And uh, and it's so true. You know, oftentimes we get into prayer and we're like, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know how to pray. Like, where do I even start in prayer? And it's so reassuring that like in moments where we don't even know what to pray, the Holy Spirit actually knows our heart. That there's someone with us that knows us better than we know ourselves. Isn't that good news? That he knows us better than we know ourselves and he's able to interpret us to God. I th- I sometimes with, with Em and I, like, she'll say that I speak Emily, and so sometimes I'll be able to actually, you know, like, she'll be saying something, and I'll be like, oh, you mean this, right? And she's like, yeah, that's what I meant. And so it's it, the more you get to know somebody, the more intimate you become, the more you're able to understand and, and interpret. And the Holy Spirit knows us so well that even when we don't know what it is that we're thinking or saying, even when our spouse doesn't, he does. That he's so intimate, so close with us, he knows our hearts and our minds. And it's so good that we have somebody that actually intercedes for us. Because oftentimes we think that we're on our own in prayer. We think that we're going to this and we feel like our prayers are bouncing off the wall and we don't really know if anybody's there. And it's so, so valuable to know that the Holy Spirit is there and he's actually interceding for us. You know, as I was, I was looking at this passage, um, 
thinking about interceding and uh, a story about um, my mom came up. Uh, when I was young, I was probably in eighth grade, and I was running around the house chasing. We had a, a Sheltie, and I was chasing her around, having fun. And all of a sudden, I got a prick in my toe. Like, I got just got stuck, and, like, I went down, man. I was out for the count. Like, I held my toe, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this hurts. And my mom came, and I was like, come on, what's wrong with you? It's like a little prick, you know? I'm like, come on, this hurts really bad. And uh, my toe started to swell, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon, it's, I mean, it's it's swollen up big. And um, so she uh, had me soak it in Epsom salt and had me try to squeeze and try to, like, you know, cleanse it out. And uh, finally, we go to the doctor. And uh, my mom's like, listen, I think that there's something in his toe. I think there's something in there. And I was like, nah, it's fine. And she, like, actually steps up and, like, interceded for me, right? She stepped up because the doctor's not going to listen to me. I'm some 13-year-old kid. He's going to be like, oh, you're fine, you know, and just dismiss it. But my mom was like, no, he needs to get an x-ray. He needs his toe examined because there's something in there. And the doctor, like, was so kind of awesome. was like, I really don't think there's anything in there. Like, whatever. Mom was like, no, this is what we're doing. And so the doctor was like, okay, like, all right, we'll do it, you know, like, have your way, you know, like, okay. And so we get in there, and, like, sure enough, man, there's a sewing needle stuck in my big toe. Yeah, I know. That's what I said. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. And so so long story short, they, like, they put me out, and they took it out, and I was like, all right, lesson learned, you know. Thank you, Mom. You interceded for me. But I, I say that story because sometimes we feel like we're not being heard. You know, sometimes we feel like we get in a situation, and it's so, so vital for us to know that, man, God the Holy Spirit is there. And how how much does he intercede for us? How much does he stand in front of God and, and, and in front of us, too, and helping us to understand that God is there with us, that God loves us, that he knows what's going on, and that he's able to articulate and hear our heart in the midst of our deepest struggles? Um. In John 14, 16, Jesus is talking here, and he talks about that God searches our hearts, right? That, that our hearts aren't a mystery to God, but instead he's able to see into every aspect of them. He says, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you an, another helper to be with you forever. And so one of the things that, sorry, one of the things that we see with this passage is Jesus is praying here, right? Jesus is praying to the Father, and, he, and he's asking his Father to give us the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to see that, like, our ability to pray, our ability to even come to God is an answered prayer request. You know, like, God answers prayer. He hears our prayer because our ability to even have the Holy Spirit is is God the Father hearing his son's prayer and answering it and giving us the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is right now interceding for us. He's on the Father's right hand interceding for us, hearing our requests. Um. John Stott, a commentary, says this. He says, prayer is in itself an essentially Trinitarian exercise. It is access to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. The inspiration of the Spirit is just as necessary for our prayers as the mediation of the Son. We can approach the Father only through the Son and only by the Spirit. And so one of the things that we see here, guys, is that all aspects of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are involved in our prayers. Is that God the Son is standing at the right hand of the Father and he's, he's interceding for us. He's telling the Father of our request. God the Holy Spirit lives inside of our heart. And he is the one that is helping our heart to believe and understand what God speaks to us through his word. He's the one that is convincing our mind of who we are and who God says that we are. Um, going on in, in 1 Samuel, um, talking about that God knows our heart. Um, 
the Lord said to Samuel, he says, do not look on his appearance. He's talking about King David. He's, you know, Saul's been rejected as king and Samuel's going to look for a king, you know, to appoint over Israel and saying, who do you want me to appoint God? And God says, he says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God does not look at our outward appearance, but instead God sees our heart. He sees down to the very core of who we are. In Luke 16, 15, Jesus says, talking to the Pharisees, he says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so once again, when we talk about prayer, it's very easy for us to become lofty in, in what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees thought because of their many phrases, because of how eloquent they were, that they would be heard. But it says, it says, God knows our heart when we come to him. And God is more concerned about the motivation of our heart than he is the words that come from forth from our lips. That those concern him much more is how we think and how we relate to him. And if we're coming to him in, in an attitude of love and of thankfulness and of humility. Um, Keller finally talks about, he says, so three persons are involved in our praying. First, we ourselves in our weakness do not know what to pray. Secondly, the indwelling spirit helps us by interceding for us and through us with speechless groans, but according to God's will. Thirdly, God the Father, who both searches our hearts and knows the spirit's mind, hears and answers accordingly. So as we sum up, the spirit intercedes for us by helping us to understand God knows us. He sees our heart and we can have assurance that God relates to us he knows us and he sympathizes with the groanings that we go through that we're not alone in prayer the next thing that he goes on to is in uh in verse 28 um, probably one of the most famous verses in all the bible it says for god you know works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose and so there's five truths in this short verse that i just want to talk about real briefly the first thing that it talks about it says that god works Right? It's important that we understand that, that God is not passive. Instead, God is active. God is constantly on the move. It says in John 5:17, Jesus says, he says, my father is working even until now, and I myself am working. Right? In Philippians 2, 13 through 14, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He said, God is up to work. In all the times in your life, God is not passive. God is not ambivalent. God is instead actively pursuing an end in your life. God is working in you, even if you don't feel it, even if you don't sense it. And sometimes those are the deepest ways. I know often I hear this from, from younger Christians, as, you know, or, or Christians that have been around for a while. Is, Man, I don't, I don't see the Lord working. But instead, one of the things I always say is I can see it, usually over a period of years. Sometimes we don't notice it in ourselves. God is always up to work in our lives. He's always up to something, whether it's that he's humbling us, whether it's he's exalting us because we've been humiliated, whether it's that he's encouraging us, whether he's teaching us to mourn with others. God is always up to work. Psalm 68, 19, it says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens, the God who is our salvation. God daily is there to bear our burdens. So we see that God works. The second thing is that God is working not just to work. God's not simply spinning his wheels, but instead God has a purpose in his work. God is working for the good of his people. God is actively working for the good of his people. Uh, John Newton, he said that everything is needful that God sends. 
Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that God sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. Can I tell you, one of the truths that has helped me in some of my dark hours of my life has been the fact that if I knew everything that God knows, I would want to be exactly where I'm at right now. That every step in my journey is necessary, and every step is worth it. Because what happens in our moments of suffering is that we think, man, if I was God, I would do things a little differently right now. You know, like I wouldn't take this turn. Or I surely wouldn't have done that, you know, and we and we start thinking that. And one of the important things to know is that, like, um, I'm 27. God's infinite. Um, so we should have a, a little humility check here. And no matter how old you are, God's a little bit older than you. And so God has a little bit more intelligence. Um, so first, like, take a humble pill and chill out. And second um, is that is that God knows. uh <laughs> James will do it, and God exalts, God humbles the proud and exalts the, the humble, humble pill. Uh, um, the second thing is that, that God, God knows everything. Not that he's just infinite, but God also knows everything, and that he is actively bringing about your good in each step of the process. And everything that happens is necessary to bring about our good. And this is where we kind of see it, is that the third thing is that, like, God is working. God is working for our good. But guess what? God is working for our good in all things. Not just in some things, not just in the big things, but in all things. In every single thing. All means all. And and so he's working together for the good in all things. And just a couple, a couple areas where we see this is that as I'm thinking about, like, all things, um, the story of Joseph comes to mind. Now, Joseph, if you don't know, Joseph, the story of Joseph is found in Genesis. It's chapters 38 through 50. And Joseph is, uh, is the beloved of his father, right? He's, um, he's loved dearly. You know, he's given this coat. He's given privilege. And God shows favor, and God reveals these dreams to Joseph. And Joseph shares the dreams that God has given to him, but his brothers don't really care for that because he says, listen, I'm going to rule over all of you. And so his brothers and even his parents, you know, he tell them that, and his dad's like, all right, you might keep it down. You know, like, let's not talk about you ruling over me. And uh, and, and Joseph is, is speaking what God has told him. And uh, and eventually it gets to the point where Joseph is going, and he's going to find out his brothers because his brothers aren't doing exactly as his father's told him. Joseph's going to find him out, and his brothers come come together and conspire a plot. And they say, listen, let's kill this brat. Like, he's been talking stuff. He's been talking like he's better than us, and he's going to be exalted over us. Well, we're going to end that real quick. And so the brothers conspire to, to kill Joseph. But luckily, he's saved. Instead, he's sold into slavery, a much better option. And so he's sold into he's sold into slavery by his brothers, right? And he goes to Egypt, and he's under this man named Potiphar. And he works for Potiphar for quite a long time, and he shows himself faithful. So Joseph is, is taking a situation in stride, right? He says, okay, like, I'm just going to continue to be faithful. I'm going to continue to entrust myself to the Lord. And he's now in, this, in Potiphar's house, and he's doing well. And it's, it's, he's doing so well that he's put as second in command, right? And so he has charge almost over everything that Potiphar has. But there's a problem. Potiphar's wife thinks Joseph's hot. Right. She wants some she wants her some Joseph. And uh, and so Joseph, Joseph is like, listen, I can't do this. And so he's like how I can't offend my I can't offend God. I can't you know, like I can't dishonor your master, your husband. And I can't I can't shame God like that. And so she keeps like coming at Joseph. And Joseph finally like gets to the point at which he like tries to like just 
take him. She's like going to take him down UFC style, like strip him. And he like runs, you know, like he's like, I'm not going to win this one. And so he just takes off and, uh, and she grabs his cloak. And so she lies about Joseph and she tells, she tells Potiphar, she says, listen, Joseph tried to come on to me. Joseph tried to rape me. And so she lies about Joseph and Joseph is now thrown in prison. Right. And so he is, he's thrown in prison, like everything that he had known, like his family's like a whole nother country. They sold him out. Like he had just gotten a pretty like decent gig for being enslaved. And now he's sitting in prison, you know, and he sits in prison for a while. Long story short, he eventually gets out, but it takes quite a while. He interprets these dreams to different people. And eventually, eventually the Pharaoh hears about Joseph and about his ability to interpret dreams. And Joseph is lifted out of prison, but not for a very long time. And then you see a little bit of irony and redemption and that Joseph has told the Pharaoh that there's going to be this huge plenty. There's going to be, you know, a, a great harvest for seven years and there's going to be a great famine for seven years. And so Pharaoh stores up all of this, all the crops to, in preparation for this famine that's coming. And in the midst of the famine, Joseph's family comes. They come from Israel. They come because they have no food and they don't recognize Joseph. And Joseph, at this point in time, you know, does a couple things to trick him, kind of gets back a little bit. But at the end, he he forgives them. He totally lets them go. And they're broken. And this is what he says to them. Right? He says, you, you intended this for evil. Your intention from the very beginning was for evil. But God, God's intention was good. God's intention was good. And that should blow our minds because he's saying that the same event has two different causes. God is causing that event every step along the way. And also that man has a part in that play. And that doesn't make sense to us, right? We're kind of like, well, either God did it or man did it. And he's saying it's both. He's saying that man actually, that your intention in this act, you willingly did this act and your intention was evil. But God did this act and his intention was good. And so one of the things that we see, guys, is that it doesn't matter whether something's happened to you because of the sinfulness of yourself or of others or the brokenness of this world. God works all things, all things together for good. And listen, this also includes the good things. Sometimes we just think, well, listen, like this this includes the bad things. Yes, I know that God uses my suffering to make me more like Jesus and he uses it for good. But listen, God also uses the good things. One of the things about Christians that we... That, that we believe is that this world isn't a very nice or happy place. As Christians, we start out with three assumptions that first, like we have a sinful nature, right? We aren't like always good people, but instead we actually think evil things and we want to do evil things at times. So we have a sinful nature that we war against. We also live in a broken world. And so we're not blind to the pain and the poverty and the famine and the wars that go on in this world. And so our world isn't perfect and it's really broken. And we also believe that there's an adversary that wages war against us, that wants our, dis- our defeat, that wants to destroy us. And so that should sh- set an expectation for us as we approach the world that maybe things aren't going to be perfect. And so when we wake up in the morning, it helps us to have a healthy expectation because how your expectation is, what your expectation about something is going to determine your approach to it. Right. If you expect that something's going to go like perfectly and then it doesn't, guess what? You're going to be like destroyed. Right. But if if you approach something, you think like, man, this could be really difficult and it turns out pretty well. You can be a little bit you're going to be a little bit more excited about it, you know. And so as Christians, we can come and we approach life and say, listen, like there are going to be hardships. There are going to be hard times. And so we know when good things happen that they're actually a gift from God. 
I mean, can I tell you, this is one of the biggest things that I think separates Christians from non-Christians, is that most of the times with non-Christians, what they believe is that the purpose of my life, the purpose of my life is for me to be happy, for me to have a successful life, for me to get the things that I want. And so when sorrows or suffering or pain or anything gets in the way of those things, then life crumbles. It begins to fall apart because your purpose for living is being blocked. For Christians, though, we realize that like our purpose for living isn't that we're going to be happy or live a worldly successful life, but instead it's that we would be conformed into Christ's image. And so we expect that trials and suffering and hardships are going to come because that's part of the process. But we realize that when good things happen, that they are a gift from God. And instead of taking them for granted, instead of saying, oh, well, that should happen to me because you know who I am, we instead say, God, thank you so much that you would choose to even be gracious to me right now. And instead of making us prideful, instead makes us grateful and thankful, which are very different. It makes us reliant and, and it forms us to be like Christ. It forms us more into his image because we're the kind of people that can't help but praise him for all the good things that happen in our life. And so let me ask you, when good things happen into your life, do you thank God for them? Or do you take them for granted? Do you think that they simply happen to you because you're you? Because this is what you are owed or what you deserve? Or do you instead see that every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change? That he gives good gifts. So not only do we see that that everything works together for good in, in, in Joseph's case, right? That even the bad things. One of the things I really want to point out is that we see that in Jesus' life. Right? The very the very epicenter of the, of the Christian life begins with the cross of Christ. I mean, what do we learn about Jesus? Right, He prays. He says, Father, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes to the cross. Right, Nobody at the cross was saying, I get it. Like, this makes sense now. No, everybody at the cross said, like, their life fell apart. Right, I mean, all the disciples began to leave him because all their hopes and all of their dreams, everything that they invested their entire life in was now gone. Right, I mean, they had left their businesses. They had left their families. Like, they had left all these things to pursue Christ because they believed, right, that, that he was the way, that he was the Messiah, that he was bringing in a kingdom. And when the cross come, when the cross came, nobody said, oh, this, so this is how the kingdom's coming. No, they thought that's how the kingdom ended. And they thought the kingdom was done. But don't you see that that was the very centerpiece of how God was working all things together for good? That it's only through the cross that there was the resurrection. It's only through death that there was new life. And so God works together all things for good. Even the cross of Christ was brought to bring the salvation of all those who would believe. Even your deepest pain and suffering might be to bring about the greatest good. Maybe it would be that you would die to something that would kill you. And instead you would learn to live to Christ that would give you life. It's to crucify a false idol, a false God that you think is so important to you. And God says, I love you too much to let your soul thirst on things that will never satisfy. And instead, I want to give you something that will really bring life. So we've seen that there are five truths. God works. God works for the good of his people. God works together in all things. And that God works for those that love him. Right? Sometimes we say this promise, but this promise is very specific. It's very selective. It's to Christians. Listen, God doesn't work together all things for good for everyone. God works together all things for good for those that love him, for those that believe in him, for those that know him. One of the things that we learned back in, in Romans chapter 1 
is that um, sometimes God's wrath looks like him giving you what you want that actually destroys you. And so one of the things we see that with non-Christians is that sometimes what you think will really make you most happy actually ends up destroying your life. And so we know that God works all things together for good for those that love him because of the good that he's bringing about. Right? What's what's the purpose? How? What is the good that God is bringing about that everything is working towards? Right? I mean, that's a pretty important question. We need to understand the good that everything is working towards if we're understanding how we encounter our sufferings. The good that everything is working together forward towards is us being more like Jesus. Right? Is us looking more like him, us loving more like him, us being more humble like him, us being thankful like him. And this is not possible for non-Christians. Right? Is that... The circumstances in their life, if they're bad, guess what? It doesn't help because it's not going to make you, you know, like, right? If it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. Well, guess what? There's a point in time in which they die. It's not going to make you stronger. It's instead going to continue to weaken you because without Christ, it's going to make your heart suffering. Suffering without Christ will make your heart bitter, right? Is that you'll become extremely bitter. You'll either become isolated or you will, you'll lie to yourself. You won't think deeply about the things in life. Right? I hear this a lot. It's everything's fine. They're in a better place. And you don't actually think deeply about the truths of life. Instead, you just dismiss it with empty euphorisms. And so it, without Christ, it will lead you and suffering will destroy you. It will either cause you to not want to ever talk about anything serious or think about deep things in life. Or it will make your heart bitter and angry and frustrated and isolated because you won't want to love. When you've really been hurt, when you've really been hurt, you've lost something... If you don't have Christ to mend and heal, then you won't want to love again because you'll want to guard and protect your heart from anything that could hurt it. But Christ comes to bring healing, right? In the life of a believer, he will come in those instances and he will bring healing because he will mend your heart because he's your first love. Whatever is your center, whatever is your God, whatever you worship, you will either be brought out of that in strength or weakness depending upon your approach to it. So if your relationship with God is the most primary thing, and you realize his love for you, you will be able to approach everything else in life with strength. It will bring vibrancy in life and encouragement to everything else. But if it's not, you'll move else. You'll move out into everything else in weakness because you'll be unsure about love because it'll always be changing. It'll always be up and down. That he's got to be the center point. So the promise is specific. And he finishes that it's for those that are called according to his purpose. Right, that God calls us, and this is I kind of want to. We'll end talking about the steps of salvation with His calling. That God, God calls us, right? Often I, I hear, and I think early in the Christian life we think this, like, "Well, I'm pursuing God," or "I, I went after God." And one of the things that I, I soon realized was that actually it was Jesus that was chasing me all along. I think it was Malcolm Mugridge who talked about. He said that that Jesus was the hound of heaven. That he came chasing our souls from heaven. That he came after us. And how foolish, how arrogant to think that we were the ones chasing after him. But instead, all along, he knew us. And all along, he has been chasing us. And he says this here. He talks about, um, at the very end, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so let's let's talk about these real quick. So he says there's foreknowledge, there's predestination, right? There's there's calling, 
there's justification, and then the last he says, glorification. Okay, so first let's talk a little bit about foreknowledge. <coughs> I want to tell you something that foreknowledge is not. Okay, oftentimes we hear this, that we're saved because God had this future-looking telescope, and God looked in the future, way off and afar, and he saw that we were these really good people and that we would choose him, that we would choose to love God. Can I tell you that foreknowledge is not that? Foreknowledge is not God looking some far off distance and seeing that we would choose him because God's not reactionary. What I mean by that is that ultimately, if we were the ones that first chose God, if God looked in a future looking telescope and saw that we chose him, we would ultimately be the first ones in the authors of our salvation. We would be the ones that chose God and it would say that we ultimately, why is it that we're better than other people? Well, we chose him. We're, you know, and obviously, if we chose him, then why did we choose him? There must something be more intelligent or more wise or more, you know. And so what foreknowledge doesn't mean is that God looked through some future-looking telescope and saw that we would choose him because that makes God reactionary and it makes us the author of our salvation, which is clearly not what Scripture teaches. What foreknowledge means is it means foreloved. And it's used all throughout as foreloved. God set his love on a people and he foreloved them. And so you see this with Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew 7. And he's talking to a group of people that's come to him. And they've done all these amazing, you know, they, they say that we've prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. And Jesus turns to them and he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Well, what does he mean by I never knew you? He doesn't mean that intellectually I didn't know you. Of course God knows, right? God knows everything. God is infinite in his knowledge. And so it's not like there's a fact that God didn't know. No, there's something specific there in that word known. It means a kind of relationship. It means an intimacy. It means that I foreloved you, that I have, I didn't know you in that intimate love relationship. And so he says right here that like it starts with God foreloving us. That like, why is it that we're saved? Because God loved us. There's nothing in us. There's nothing that God saw and said, well, that's why, because, man, they're going to be really great at this. Or because, man, like, they're going to do this. Like, God didn't save us because we are morally good. <laughs> he uh, he actually says um, of Israel, uh, there's a, a quote. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. But it was because the Lord loved you. The only source of divine election is, is divine love. You understand that that was what he's told Israel, right? He didn't, Israel was his specific group of people and he chose them. Why didn't he choose everybody else, right? We are not told that. We are told that the reason that he chose Israel is because he foreloved them. It wasn't because Israel, surely it wasn't because Israel was more virtuous because we see clearly like, I mean, he's like, listen, like you're compared with a prostitute, okay? So like it was not at all that Israel was more virtuous and it wasn't that Israel was more powerful, it was simply because of God's will that he says, I love you because I love you. And isn't that good news? That's so good news. It's so freeing for us. Because listen, if there's anything that God said, well, I love you because of this, then ultimately that would be the source and you would care more about that. And God would care more about that aspect of you than he would care about you. But God cares about you. God knows you and he loves you. And so God foreloved you. And that blows, that blows my mind to think about that, that like before the ages have come, God foreloved me. Like God loved my soul and God loved your soul so long ago and for such a duration. He's put all these things in our path that we might know him, that we might seek him. So we see it starts with, with God's foreknowledge, God's forelove. And then it goes into, into his predestination. 
right? And we're going to talk about this in chapter 9, right? Chapter 9 gets into this, and people oftentimes divide over this, right? We have Calvinism and Arminianism, and, and the two never shall meet, right? And you see oftentimes people hurl bombs back and forth between each other. But here's the thing. What we see in the Bible is that we see that God's sovereign actions are why things happen. And we see that man is held to account for his moral choices. We see both of those. Right. We don't see that. Listen, God determined something. So man's a robot and uh, man just sits back on his rear and just chills out and eats potato chips and watch football. Like that's not what happens. Right. What we see is that we see that God like God saves. God saves. And we know this. Right. I mean, we know this because we don't say, well, I saved myself. We say God saved me. And we don't pray to ourselves and say, oh, come on, let's save somebody today. We instead say, God, would you save somebody today? We know that God's the author of salvation. God is the one that saves. Right. But God saves through means. God saves through means. And this is what we see. His calling is that God uses the preaching of the gospel to save people. Is it's through hearing of Christ Jesus crucified for our sin, buried and raised from the dead, that people are saved. Right? This is why we don't just do good deeds and then don't speak. Right? This is why Francis of Assisi's whole, you know, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. No, like that's not gospel. Like that's not that's not Jesus, that's not Paul. Right? We preach the gospel through our deeds and our words, right? Sometimes we need to let our deeds shine along with our words, but surely our words are a company because nobody say nobody sees you serving them and think, Jesus died for my sin. No, they see you serving them and then you say, you know why I did this? Because Jesus died for my sins. And they think, oh, okay, and then they're saved, right? Then they choose to believe upon that. And so we see that, right, God chooses god ordains god saves he does so through means man and this is predestination it's a very biblical word predestination election paul uses it all the time we can't get around it guys i know for some of us that makes us uncomfortable because of our backgrounds because of whatever else but it's a very profound biblical word and so we have to think through what it is and how it's used to understand because for paul when you look at how paul understood predestination election is it was a source of great assurance and great confidence like in Corinth, Paul was going to Corinth and he'd heard what was in Corinth. And Paul was like, I don't want to go there. You know, he's like, dude, I, there's like, they're really bad. God, can I skip that city? And this is what God tells him. God says, listen, Paul, there are many that I've appointed to eternal life. There are many that I've appointed to eternal life. And Paul went and he stayed there for some days and continued to preach. And so you know why it assures me this idea of, of election predestined because it, God promises that he will save some. That he will save and that I have to be faithful and that you have to be faithful. And what it does is it frees you because it's not about your performance. You see what often happens and hinders us from sharing the gospel is I don't know enough. Well, I don't know enough, and so I probably shouldn't share the gospel because I don't want to botch it up. Or, well, I'll let the preacher do that. That's what he's good for. You know, I'll just bring him to church. You know, or we, we make all these excuses for not sharing the gospel, right? Because ultimately what you're doing is that you're thinking their salvation is up to you. You're, you're believing that their salvation is up to you rather than being faithful to what God has told you to be faithful to and opening your mouth and telling them the gospel. Because what election does, it says, listen, it's not up to you. You might botch it up and God might save somebody. Praise the Lord. Be faithful. Be faithful. Open your mouth. Speak the truth. Let people know. Do so in a spirit of love and gentleness, but realize that God's going to save and he does so through means and it might be you. And so let us be open and realize that this doctrine should bring great freedom to us and great assurance that God's going to work. God will work in and through your life if you will simply be faithful to him. If you will say, God, here I am, use me, use me. 
And so we see that there's a foreknowledge, that there's predestination, and then we see that he says, you know, you're called and you're justified. And that's the process, right? That's when you hear the gospel and you respond to it. There's a calling that God issues upon the believers. Right? He calls them to himself. Jesus says this. He says that the Father's entrusted all to me, and all who come to me I will surely not cast out. And that the Father draws them, right? The Father draws those that come to Christ. So this is why we can be so confident. What happens sometimes is people hear that and say, well, am I really being? If you're hearing the gospel, you're called, all right? Like, you don't have to doubt, like, man, am I predestined? Am I elected? Listen, if you're hearing the gospel, you're predestined, you're elected. God loves you. God wants you to be saved. And so we don't have to, like, we don't have to kind of, like, weigh and doubt. I'm like, oh, man, like, I wonder. No, like, it's pretty clear. God loves you. God wants you to be saved. Like, if you're hearing the gospel and you're responding, you're elected. You're predestined. And so we see that there's there's calling and there's justification. And then the last thing that he, he ends with is he, he says that we're glorified. And it's so interesting in this passage because he says so in, in past tense, right? Because, like, glorification's in the future, I mean, like, I don't know, like, last time I looked in the mirror, I didn't look glorified. You know, like, I don't think you did either. No offense. But we are not glorified yet, okay? We don't stand, and we don't have new bodies, and we can't fly and do all kinds of cool stuff. Like, that's not happened yet. But yet Paul says it in the past tense. He says, and we're glorified, right? And why does he say that? He says it because God's promises are sure. Because when God says something, he's going to do it. And that we can take it to the bank. And so he says, listen, like, it's so sure that when you're in Christ that there will be a day when you're glorified that's as if it's already happened. Your adoption is, is so sure that like you are his son that though your body hasn't been redeemed yet, you are already considered redeemed. You are already considered fully his. Man, and it's so good. It's it's so I'm so thankful to be with God that his promises are sure. Or we can count on him. And so I'd just like to, to end our time. Just with that idea of just saying, Father, I want to count on your promises. In these moments where I doubt your goodness, where I struggle to see that everything in my life is working together for good, just come to him in prayer. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end um, in prayer. And, and I ask that um, as we take a little bit of time, just in silence, I just want you to come to the Lord. And I want you to ask him to change your heart, to change your mind, to help you to maybe see your life in a way that makes sense that everything is working together for good. To open, open up that realm of your mind and say, God, show me how everything in my life is working together to make me more like Jesus. And perhaps if you've come and you're not a Christian, you've come and you're checking out Christianity and you say, I'm not really sure about this. You know, like maybe I've been raised in a church or I was brought to a church, but I don't know if I'm really Christ. I don't know if I'm really his. I'd ask that at this moment that you make a trust exchange. That you say, Christ, I need you. I can't do this life on my own. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried and that you were raised from the dead and that that I can be one with you, that you love me and that you will take me just as I am and that you will change me. And I ask that you would pray that, that you would ask the Lord to come in and that you would indicate, you would, you would mark that on your card or that you would talk to me because, listen, you're loved here. Like, if there's anything, I want you to know that you are loved and you are cared for. You have a body of people around you, this family. They can't wait to encourage you and to love on you. And so just take a couple moments to just be still and, and just talk to the Lord and I'll end us in prayer.
Father, Papa, we come before you. I'm so thankful for those that are in front of me. God, I'm so thankful that you love them and that you know them. I pray that you would encourage and strengthen them. God, that as they pray this week, as they come before you in prayer, God, I ask that your spirit would help them, that you would give clarity to what they ought to pray for. God, I I ask that in their moments when sorrow or when joy or when their own sin overcomes them, God, when it, it leaves them without words, I pray that your Holy Spirit would well up within them, Lord, and that you would give them a sense that you are you're intimate and that you groan and you feel what they feel and that you know what they're going through and that you are there for them. God, I pray that you would renew our minds for when we go through tough times or even when we go through the, the menial things, whether it's somebody cutting us off in traffic or us not getting our way, God, I ask that you would help us to see that everything, for all things, work together for good for those that love you and are called according to your purpose, God. I pray for those that perhaps don't know you here. I pray that you would save. God, that you would help them to believe the gospel. I pray that they would trust you right now, Lord, for their life. That they would surrender to you as Lord and Savior. I pray that you would help them to know that, and to, just to experience a deep life of, of your church. That they would be loved and love in return. God, I thank you that before we were even born, you foreloved us. That you knew exactly what it would be like. And that you've been the hound of heaven. You've chased us. You've bought us. Thank you that we can trust you, God, in salvation. Help us to be faithful. God, instead of seeking to escape um, by making excuses, help us instead to be faithful to proclaim the gospel, Lord, with our deeds and our mouth, that you might receive praise and that people might be saved. Forgive us, God, we ask, and we confess our sin oftentimes of our negligence and our fear hindering us from being bold to share the gospel. Help us to love people greater and to um, to die to ourselves more. We give you all the glory and all the praise, King Jesus. It is in your glorious name that we pray. Amen.